This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly is starting right now. I would say the Team Rubicon is a very great organization to not just being biased, but uh, it's a great organization to join just because it's not always just disasters that we do because disasters don't happen every day, right? I've had a lot of questions on a break in the field of emergency management. Like I've said in the past, I think that volunteering with a disaster relief organization is a great way to start. So today, I have with me Lourdes Tagalo from Team Rubicon Global. And we're going to be discussing what Team Rubicon Global does and what it is to be in the emergency management field as a female and a minority. But before we get into the interview, have you had a chance to look at the new EM student show over on forums.emweekly.com? If you haven't, get over there and create a profile, you know, start joining the conversation. You know, it's a lot of fun and there's a lot of really good information over there. On forums.emweekly.com is a place where we are growing the EM community. So I'm so stoked about this platform and I really can't wait to see you guys over there. We have a lot of cool stuff coming that way. And have you checked out the new show? It's the EM Student Podcast. So I'm really excited to have that going on there. So if you're a student or you know someone who's a student, send them over. And it's really, like I said before, it's a great place to create the new emergency management community just for us. And Ask Todd this week, uh, we had a question from Brad in Tennessee. And Brad was asking, how do we get the community excited uh, to be prepared for disasters? You know, Brad, that's really a great question. That's one of those things that we've been really struggling with for a few years here. The idea of preparedness is never sexy. In fact, the subject is sometimes monotonous. Say, you know, have you ever been excited to talk about car insurance or life insurance? Probably not. However, there are some cool programs out there to talk about the new idea of the resilient community. And we're going to be highlighting some of those programs in the next few shows. So, so Brad, hang in there, buddy. Listen to the shows. We have some of those coming up. A disaster resilience um, and making your community a disaster resilient community. So I'm excited about that. You're going to open your eyes to the world of making that community a resilient one. Well, let's cut to the cheese. Let's get to the interview. Hey, everybody. Um, this is, I'm excited today to have uh, uh, Loris here with me today. And she is part of Team Rubicon Global. And if you guys didn't know Team Rubicon, I know we've interviewed a couple people and talked about it. There's two sections. There's Team Rubicon USA. And then there's Team Rubicon Global, which really like, literally covers the rest of the globe. So, Loris, welcome to Ian Weekly. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. So tell me a little bit first about yourself and how you get involved in emergency management and what that means to you. So I'm actually a 12-year veteran of the United States Air Force, and I was involved in the critical care air transport team, uh, basically doing medical evacuation. So I had some deployments in Afghanistan and Saudi and across different areas of the globe. Uh, So Humanitarian assistance is really not something extremely new to me, but certainly my role is a little bit different from back then. So when I got out of the military, I went back into the medical service and worked in a hospital, but definitely found a little bit of something that felt missing. And that's really kind of where Team Rubicon really helped give that new sense of purpose, that sense of drive to do something bigger than what I'm doing in my immediate vicinity, which is really what drives me to 
to continue being a part of the team community across the globe. So in 2012 or 13, somewhere around there, maybe a little bit later, Team Rubicon split up into two sections from just Team Rubicon to Team Rubicon USA, Team Rubicon Global. And then, so tell me a little bit about that process and then what Team Rubicon Global really is. Yeah, so um, let me just give a little bit of a clarification. Team Rubicon USA was definitely the starting genesis of the Team Rubicon brand. What we've found as we were deploying across the globe, where there were um, many different veterans from different um, nations, um, see what we do, have worked with us in various capacities unofficially. So they wanted to see how they can bring Team Rubicon community into their own nations as well to do what we were doing. And so that's really kind of where the genesis of Team Rubicon Global started. It's not as much as a split, but more of a, an, an expansion of being able to facilitate the growth of Team Rubicon nations across the globe. And so that really kind of brings me down to the mission of Team Rubicon Global. So Team Rubicon Global actually supports the Team Rubicon Network, which is actually now up to five countries, by fostering the establishment and the development of new Team Rubicon country units and facilitating the Team Rubicon Network by providing effective provision of humanitarian aid in the wake of disasters. And so when I say all of this, that what we're really doing is we're trying to to help new countries start Team Rubicon organizations of their own, much like what the USA is. They are a charity of their own, in their own nations. They have their own boards of governance, their own executive leadership. Um, and so what I mentioned earlier that we have five countries under our belt, that's in, that includes TRUSA, Team Rubicon UK, TR Canada, TR Australia, and TR Norway. And we're still growing. Right. I thought it was kind of cool that with uh, Team Rubicon UK, we have a, a celebrity kind of uh, part of our organization. <laughs> yes, uh, we do have Prince Harry uh, that probably calls himself a gray shirt. He deployed over in Nepal during the earthquake. Yeah, he seems to be a pretty amazing person uh, all the way around. And it's kind of great to have him part of the Team Rubicon family. So what kind of missions do you see Team Rubicon Global doing? I guess it'd be same what we're doing here in Team Rubicon USA. But what's the difference between, like, say, something Norway would do that we wouldn't really get involved with with any other nation involved with. Right. So, um, so just just so just so that it's there's a little bit more of a clarification. I know it, it seems a little confusing when people first think about what Team Rubicon Global is versus Team Rubicon Country Units. So Team Rubicon Global is not necessarily an operational arm like TRUSA, UK, Canada, Australia, Norway. So we really provide the support and the start of Team Rubicon Country Units. So we'll help them with their business model, etc. Having said that, Team Rubicon Global, um, our people, we have folks in the field ops training, uh, partnerships, etc. We actually do go out to, into um, the operational field, but more as a mentor and in training and guidance for the new nascent team Rubicon units that are just starting. Right. Perfect. So how would somebody who is part of anything would like to get involved with, like, say, Team Rubicon Global? Like, what's the qualifications that get you there? And, and what do you have to do to, to be involved with that global outreach? Yeah, so Team Rubicon Global really helps to 
facilitate and um, help develop the entire team, team Rubicon network. I like to think that anyone who's involved in any Team Rubicon community across any different nation is really part of the Team Rubicon global family because everything that we do is in support of the entire network. If they'd like to get more information and see how they can help our events that we sometimes do around in D.C., they can go to teamrubiconglobal.org to find that out. They can certainly reach out to me. And uh, the other way to really, um, what I would suggest for people to really get involved is whichever country they're in. And they don't always have to be a veteran. They can be a first responder. Or if they're really just interested in learning more to get involved in their own local communities, seek out a Team Rubicon uh, member or volunteer or leadership with their Team Rubicon country. And again, they're in U.S., U.K., Canada, Norway, and Australia. Any one of those guys can help. And anyone that gets involved in touch with those uh, Team Rubicon country unit leadership and that community really becomes part of that Team Rubicon global network. It it is really a bit of an um, all-encompassing, comprehensive family. Everything we do at Team Rubicon global is truly in support of the network. I know that you are a globetrotter now. Literally, every time I see something with you, you're in a different part of the world. So tell me some of the exciting stuff that you've done and and how you were able to outreach and grow the Team Rubicon brand and the the recognition of what what Team Rubicon is doing around the world. Yeah, so I like to say that I have probably one of the best jobs in the world. I get to help spread the word about Team Rubicon, as well as create uh, partnerships and relationships across various sectors, whether that's be in private industry, in public sector, or in government, or intergovernmental. So some of the things that I've done that's been really exciting is really establishing some very solid relationships with uh, some UN agencies. And as you know, some of the major catastrophes around disasters around the world, the UN is always involved in those. And so it really kind of behooves Team Rubicon Network to really have a a solid relationship with the UN, especially with OCHA. So uh, one of the things that we've done, at least for me, one of the exciting things I've done is having gone through the UN Civil Military Coordination Course in Sri Lanka. That has uh, definitely proven to be eye-opening because the cohort of people that I had were definitely international from various countries around the world. And the perspectives that they bring when you go through a course like that is really invaluable. There is sometimes a, a, uh, an obstacle that folks uh, come across when they don't get to see or hear different perspectives in disasters, when the only thing that they see is only what they're used to seeing in, in their particular uh, role. So for me, having these different government entities, these other humanitarians, um, specifically we had folks from ECHO, from UNICEF, from UNDP, and then the military representatives and civil coordination from Bangladesh, from Pakistan. It, It was truly an international cohort and their perspectives really kind of created a a different filter and lens through which I was really taking some of the information that I was getting. So there was definitely a lot more nuances um, that I learned from that course. That's one of the more exciting things that I've found that I've done from last year. And then this year when I went to the Humanitarian Networks Partnerships Conference in Geneva, that is a huge flagship event for the United Nations to bring all stakeholders from the international humanitarian community into one place. And that whether that's in government, private sector, uh, intergovernmental, 
all of those folks were there. And what was great about it is we were able to really create a lot of discussion as well as some tangible after action plans for 2018 and going forward to work together instead of working in silos, which in the humanitarian community sometimes happens when you're not informed or talking to the right people. And so for me, that particular conference was really important because it allows us to really speak with the business community to to talk about what types of um, efforts they're doing, not just in their own communities, but maybe around the globe if they're a multinational business, and then how the private business community can be and help to leverage their support in order to make humanitarian efforts be more, more efficient and optimized. So you've responded to a few of the international disasters, correct? Yes, I have. What are the challenges in responding to those? So you were at Ahayana, or, or um I was. Yes, okay. Uh, and then Nepal as well? No, I wasn't in Nepal. Okay. Which ones were you on? I, the most recent one was in uh, the UK for their flood. They had a flood over in Cornwall last year. I would say that was my most recent international one. But uh, Haiyan is probably my biggest one. Right. That's okay. That's what we're going to talk about. All right. So you responded to Hurricane Haiyan in the Philippines. And what were the challenges compared to, say, responding over there internationally than it is to, say, responding in, say, the United States? I would say that the probably one of the bigger hurdles usually when you're responding internationally is having a really good grasp of the cultural nuances. Because what sometimes works here in the United States does not always work in another country, especially when you're talking about a country that is in another continent where their cultures, traditions, and their societal views and the way that the society is actually put together is maybe different from what ours is. And so having at least some cultural competence and intelligence about what society and community you're going into is probably one of the biggest hurdles that you have to overcome. Fortunately for Typhoon Haiyan, it was in the Philippines and I grew up in the Philippines. So I functioned as not only their linguist, but as well as a a little bit of a diplomatic liaison in creating some of those inroads. I definitely learned to barter with scarce resources. Um, it, as, as with any disasters, you know, resources become scarce. Money does not always talk. It is what is needed in that community that will, will probably help you get further. One, cultural competency. Two, I would say really awareness of the needs of the communities. One, because uh, you have to figure out how you can leverage what the your organizational strengths are to help that community address some of those deficits. But I would say that the other part is also knowing who the players are that are already there. And and the reason that I say that is because when you have an awareness of the structure and the the emergency management framework that is already in that country, you don't want to go in there as an outside entity and just blow it up. Right. Um, You want to go there uh, as more of a supporting role to help that community get back on their feet. It's not our job as a humanitarian organization to go there and save the day. Our job is there to support the infrastructure and to help develop that and grow that in coordination with the uh, National um, Emergency Management Agency that is in charge of that country. And I think that it's not just for Hayam, but for any international work that we do that has to be at the very top most of our mind every time. Now, I know that Team Rubicon supported the refugee crisis over in Greece. 
And I mean, I, I've read some stories and talked to some people that were there and that was kind of amazing. And can you talk a little bit about what, what Team Rubicon did there? Yeah, I wasn't personally there, but I can definitely uh, say that it was our first long-term effort into this particular space. And so it was, uh, I believe it was seven months for that deployment. And it was different people during different phases um, deploying at different um, cycles. And we had created a medical clinic in conjunction with uh, some of the local community to help address some primary basic medical needs of the refugees that are there in Thessaloniki. One of the things that we've found is that it's not always just healthcare. When we say we're starting a medical clinic to help address clinical needs, um, there's a lot that goes on in doing humanitarian medical work. There's also data, there's technology, there's communications that has to be provided in that particular structure. And so some of the, the barriers and sometimes some of the hurdles we have to overcome is data privacy, ensuring that the right people are getting the right types of medications because, uh, again, you're cr- trying to do everything from scratch. You're trying to build a framework to create a system within um, this refugee community. Yeah, so it's a, it's a lot more than just putting up a tent and start doing medical aid to people. So it's definitely exactly. a lot of <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Oh, man, this is, this is some exciting stuff right there. I want to kind of circle back a little bit and talk about you. So you, so you got into emergency management uh, based upon what your experiences with the Air Force and stuff. And two things. One, one is there are not a lot of, of women doing this type of work. And two, also with minority. The answer to that question and more when we return from our break. Emergencies happen. Whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. The modern emergency manager wears a lot of hats, so how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program? It is a matter of time, and how much is your time worth? A lot. TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. We offer pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations, and more, all coming from the archives of the Blue Cell. Get a jumpstart on the exercise process and visit us today at www.ttxvault.com. Welcome back from that break, and thank you so much for listening to our sponsors. Without them, we couldn't really bring you uh, what we have, so check them out and let them know that you came from EM Weekly. Let's continue the interview. How would you encourage women and people in general, but how would you encourage women to get involved into emergency management and into the field that you're doing? I would honestly say that the, probably the very first thing that you did women and minority have to understand is this is not for the faint of heart and you know when you're whether you're in the medical field whether any kind of first responder service you are arriving at the sometimes the darkest hours of the disaster affected community and so it's not for the faint of heart however if you are the type of person who's daring enough to want to really kind of make a change, whether it's big, whether it's small, 
it always starts with a small step. One is familiarity. Get to know someone, talk to someone who is already in that field and preferably someone who you aspire to. I always tell folks, new veterans that are coming in as they're transitioning out is if they're trying to transition and don't know the way, find someone that you admire to be a mentor of yours. And I would say for any woman or minority who's unsure about how to break in, talk to someone that they have seen, looked, uh, saw on TV or the news and just reach or reach out to someone in the local community who um, is either a woman or minority or what have you and look at their particular steps, what they've done, what obstacles they've had to overcome, and also what resources they've utilized in order to break into the field. Um, because familiarity usually brings gives courage. Once mm-hmm. you know a little bit about it, then you become a little bit braver and you start taking more steps. So familiarity and understanding is the first step. Second is really, there's a lot of online courses, ICS courses online that are free that people can take. Even just, I mean, it might look daunting when you first start looking at all these multiple choices, but, <laughs> but when, again, when you talk to someone who's already done it and you're familiarized and you're, you know what's coming, it is really not that daunting. And it doesn't mean that you have to do it on your own. Get a support group of people who are like-minded, who are going through it with you. There is nothing more debilitating sometimes for people when they think that they're the only ones going through it alone. So getting a support structure around what you're going through, and I can say this no matter what what type of uh, a life experience you're trying to go through, if you get a support structure that's helping you get through this entire process, who will support you when you feel like you're getting down, it will help you get take that next step forward each time. I know that when I first started, I felt like I didn't know as much, but really when you start being able to take those pieces from your past learning and seeing how that really comes into play with what we're doing in emergency management, you really start to see those pieces come together and you start getting a little bit more brave, you get a little bit more courage, you start speaking more, and then you start taking those next steps to really develop and hone your skills. One of the biggest questions I get is how to, and for my students, is um, how do I break in again to any job in emergency management? And I always encourage them to look at the volunteer route. So why should somebody join Team Rubicon? I would say the Team Rubicon is a very great organization to, not just being biased, but uh, it's a great organization <laughs> to join just because it's not always just disasters that we do because disasters don't happen every day, right? So in between disasters, we do a lot of community service projects that's just within our local community. So we know that every one of our volunteers are at different phases of their lives. Some are students, some have families, some have very demanding jobs, and they can't always put that two weeks to be able to deploy somewhere. However, We have community service projects and training programs that are maybe one day, a few hours, or maybe multi-days and two to three days over a weekend that really kind of helps someone get their feet wet into the community before really starting to get into the operational side. And the other part of um, volunteering with Team Rubicon, it's not always just work, work, work. We have a variety of activities that we do, and this is the same around the globe, that We try to include our Team Rubicon community. We have social events. We have physical events like sporting events. The run is one that's coming up in April being one of them. And then we have our proactive or deliberate 
operations responses. That's the one that's planned out in advance. Uh, and then there's the disaster reactive responses. And that's the one something happens. We're out there. A, a great example of that is if you've heard of Tropical Cyclone Gita that hit Tonga. Our team would be calling Australia. Folks are really just monitoring it right now until the, the government of Tonga actually asks for assistance from the international community. However, this is also the time when people can start getting their training up, making sure that they are ready to deploy. Sometimes the impetus for people to really get off that couch to do the training is when something happens. What kind of training is available through Team Rubicon? Uh, we have a variety and it really depends on which country you're, um, you're at. But here in the United States, we have uh, quite a few. Um, the ICS training, uh, like I said, is online least the basic ones to be able to deploy. If you want to step up your game and be in the leadership position within the disaster uh, response team, as in uh, being in either in a logistics or an operations section chief, etc., there's the ICS 300 and 400, and those are actually in-class training. And um, apart from just doing that, there's also skills-based training that we do. So there's damage assessments, there's disaster mapping, there is Sawyer training, a huge variety that's actually in our core, what we call our core ops training, which is basically kind of like that foundational set of skills that we usually will utilize when we are out in the field. And so those types of training, so skill sets training, education, and um, emergency management. And then there's also just kind of an OJT with people who want to develop themselves, team who become leaders. So if you want to get involved in membership management and logistics, there are people who are absolutely brilliant who will be willing to mentor you if you are willing to put the time in. So there's a job for everybody then? That's basically- there, is, there is a job for everybody. I think one of my favorite stories is, um, at least this is a quick story, so Hurricane Sandy. One of the TR volunteers that we have, their family was affected with Hurricane Sandy up in New York. A year later, there was a Pennsylvania ice storm over at her house and or not at her house, but uh, just in her neighborhood. And so um, she had reached out to me over social media saying, you know, you're, you know, team we can help my family out in New York and I really want to get involved, but I don't know anything about emergency management. I'm a kindergarten teacher. And uh, I said, but I can bring cookies. And I said, you know what? Come, we will train you. We will teach you what you need to do, but maybe bring the cookies. And so... <laughs> So, I mean, she did. She did show up that weekend. And after a day and a half of really kind of being mentored and doing on-the-job training on damage assessments and just so that we can start generating work sites, after a day and a half or two days, she was able to do her own damage assessments. And so mm-hmm. not only are people able to just contribute with the skill sets that they have, they can acquire new skill sets. Again, it's always about the willingness to put the time and the willingness to serve. We'll provide training all day long. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Okay, here comes the toughest question of the day. Yeah. What book or books or publication do you recommend to somebody who wants to get involved in this field? Oh, that is a little bit tough. I guess it kind of depends on what level they want to start. But I would say that anyone who wants to be in the humanitarian, I mean, whether it's a local or, or national, if you want to be in the humanitarian field, you should really be familiar with humanitarian principles. 
And so I would say looking at the publications specifically with the UN, and, and I say this because I just learned so much when I went to the SIMCORD course, I would say look at the humanitarian principles um, publications from the United Nations. I'm sure there probably is like a, a smaller version of this somewhere online. But And also I would say look at this other book. I would say this for someone trying to break in is uh, there is a book by uh, one of the co-founders of Team Rubicon. It's called Take Command. And the reason I say that is not only does it talk about just Team Rubicon, but it also talks about some life lessons, uh, about being bold, about breaking into things that, you know, you may feel like you don't know anything about. So one part is about knowing the kind of community you're trying to get into, but the other book that I'm talking about is about developing that inner characteristics and, and that skill and the boldness and the courage to take that step if you feel like you don't know anything about it. It will give you that little bit of boost to, it'll give you that little bit of boost to really kind of take a deep breath and just say, you know what, I can do this. And it gives some practical lessons, actually. It gives some practical lessons about some of the things that our co-founders and our organization has done, but as well as just life lessons to really bring out. And, and I always say this, you can't start into any new field unless you are, you have that, that discipline, determination to do it. Because if you don't have it in yourself and you don't prepare yourself mentally, you'll start finding yourself stumbling and not being able to get back up. Right. So let's take command by Jake Wood. Yep. Awesome, awesome. Book. But also the humanitarian principles by the UN. Yes, awesome. Cool. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to all those emergency managers out there that you know are looking at Team Rubicon? Yes, I would say, and, and this is any from anyone either nationally or globally who's listening to you. I think that one of the most important aspects to just remember about us is that we come there to support what they already have, and so. All we want for our Team Rubicon volunteers is to have that opportunity to be able to serve and to have that chance to help communities that are in need. And because in doing that, you're actually helping us and our people to start regaining that new sense of purpose and that mission and that community that we're always trying to strive for and and build back up after we've gotten out of the military. And so you are doing us a favor by allowing us to serve. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com.